Hey everyone, it's Tom Hoare. Welcome back to the BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast series where we bring you the leaders and influencers who are making an impact in our financial world and our industry and beyond. We've got a great episode for you today. Our guest on today's episode is Michael Shaloff. Michael is the CEO and co-founder of the company Fireblocks. Fireblocks is a fintech startup that is building a really incredible platform to store, transfer, and issue digital assets across the entire financial ecosystem in a secure way. And in this episode, Michael is interviewed by our very own Caroline Butler, the global head of custody at BNY Mellon, and an incredibly impressive leader and executive. And they have a really interesting conversation that I think you're going to enjoy and maybe learn something from. You might know that earlier this year, BNY Mellon was in the news when we announced the launch of our digital asset unit to provide clients with a secure infrastructure, a multi-asset platform for owning and transferring digital assets, including cryptocurrencies. And Caroline is really at the forefront of that for our bank and is building the team and the capability to bring that to life for our clients around the world. We also made the news recently when we announced another move in this space, which is that we would be a participant in the Series C funding round for Fireblocks, which is one of the reasons we asked Michael to come on the show today. Michael and Caroline talk about Michael's incredible career. He served in the Israeli Defense Force, and out of that experience has formed two companies, including Fireblocks. They talk about the nature of digital assets and how to think about storing them in hot, warm, or cold environments. They talk about the difference between traditional custody and the custodying of digital assets. And they talk about the technologies that Fireblocks is using to make the management of digital assets safe and secure, which is a really important topic. You'll also hear about this question of regulation in this space, and more broadly, the revolutionary impact that digital assets will have on the financial industry as a whole. I think you're going to find this podcast educational and interesting, and I wanted to give you a little bit of the context about why Michael would appear on our show. We're thrilled to have him as our guest. We're going to get right to it. So without any further ado, Michael and Caroline. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here today. Um, before I delve into how we are going to collectively transform the future of the finance industry, uh, no small feat, I just wanted to extend a huge congratulations to you on the latest round of funding. Um, obviously, we're very proud to have been part of that, but uh, hugely successful. Yeah, first of all, Caroline, thanks for uh, for having me here. I'm uh, really excited. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you guys being uh, part of this uh, round that, you know, really instrumental for our company. Great. So I thought what we would do, if you don't mind, is just talk us through your journey a little bit and your story. Because, I mean, obviously, I've heard this a few times from you. Um, and I find it not only just inspirational in, in the sense of, you know, where you've come from and obviously, you know, starting in the um, Israeli Defense Force and obviously getting to where you are now. But I think it, it also does, it serves a purpose of really crystallizing what Fireblocks does. So if you don't mind, do you mind sharing, you know, how you got here effectively? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's it, it, it been a long journey, right? Um, I started my career really in cybersecurity and that's uh, where I spent most of my career. So about 20 years ago in the, in the Israeli cyber command in the, in the defense forces. And about 10 years ago, I started my previous company that was focused on a transformational aspect actually around IT. So we built the first company that was protecting mobile devices, Android and iPhones from cyber attacks. And that was sort of catered into the institutional market or the enterprise market actually to help uh, IT 
to manage the risk of basically allowing people with iPhones and Android devices to get, you know, email and documents, something that's like really obvious today and uh, something that uh, some of you guys that remember, uh, people really freaked out about uh, about a decade ago. Uh, that sort of uh, we scaled that company about three years later. We got it. We got acquired by a company called Checkpoint. That Checkpoint is one of the biggest cybersecurity vendors. They invented the firewall uh, back in the '90s and uh, had a pretty good run on the back of uh, the internet. And uh, I was running the mobile and cloud security portfolio for them. So basically, they're their transformational unit. Um, and in 2017, we had a pretty interesting, well, what basically was, I guess, uh, the a monumental moment for uh, bringing us here. Uh, we were part of a, a fairly big investigation of a breach that happened in South Korea, where um, four cryptocurrency exchanges got, got hacked and about $200 million worth of uh, Bitcoin and other assets were transferred into North Korea. Um, uh, and, you know, what, what was interesting about that bridge was not only the sophistication, I guess, is sort of the realization that uh, as you, as we dig more and more into that, that really resonated that uh, the technology behind Bitcoin and, and digital and cryptocurrencies is something that is going to uh, transform finance. And uh, it was 2017, so Bitcoin was in around $1,000 back then. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't buy anything, but uh, that's a that's a different conversation. Uh, uh, but what what actually happened is that we started to talk with a lot of the institutions that uh, were either already active in the cryptocurrency space or that were contemplating um, creating activity. And what was very clear is that not only that you had all those security issues out there, there was really lack of infrastructure to basically built toward uh, what we believe that will be the this the future of of the this financial space and um, a technology and an infrastructure that uh, will provide the security and operational efficiency to really deal with the promise of how this will transform finance well beyond i would say this sort of like buy and hold notion around you know bitcoin yeah it's interesting because you know, when you say Bitcoin and you think digital assets, one of the things I've noticed is folks just associate those two singularly together. So from your perspective, can you share with folks, you know, what is digital assets? Because again, Bitcoin is just one version of, but um, if you don't mind sort of demystifying the space of digital assets a little bit. Yeah, so I think that this is really where there is a lot of, uh, I think, misunderstanding today because Definitely Bitcoin is sort of the most popular uh, asset right now, but it's also the most unique and actually, you know, very remote for everything else that is happening, right? So when I think about Bitcoin, it, it, it's this unique asset that is really, you know, basically a reserve, a reserve asset or basically, um, um, you know, this digital gold, right? But all the other cryptocurrencies and all the other digital asset-based uh, technologies, what they are really uh, supposed to do is to create a digital representation of either um, an existing financial instrument or non-bankable financial instrument uh, or, or basically new financial instruments on a ledger that is immutable that is distributed and basically allow the transfer of the transfer of value 
of those uh, instrument in a, in a global scale in a way that is actually, I think, sort of native to the internet. Um, that really sort of like, you know, first of all, puts Bitcoin in a very unique position, right? But also for me, digital assets uh, are basically stable coins, which is sort of commercial money that is tokenized uh, on, on the blockchain. It, uh, security tokens, which are basically shares and bonds that can basically be transferred. It's uh, everything that right now is called NFTs, right? But it can be anything from real estate, real, real estate to, to art, to other sort of, uh, you know, even non-bankable assets that can now be represented on the blockchain. And we basically can create new markets in terms of how this is being exchanged. And that sort of even leads us to things around trade finance in terms of how you sort of, you know, track goods and supply chain and how that really interacts with the underlying financing of those operations. But, but clearly those are things that are much more, um, I guess, uh, closer to the financial instruments that exist today in, you know, non-digital asset form uh, and bringing them into this new ecosystem really creates uh, much more efficiency, programmability, um, and, and, and other really sort of benefits that this is supposed to unlock. Yeah. And I think the exciting thing is it helps create markets where markets either don't exist today, or they're fragmented in such a way where it's, um, you know, it's rather difficult to trade in those markets. So, um, definitely a breadth of applicability going to your point, much greater than just Bitcoin. You know, I've heard Fireblocks being called a cybersecurity company. I know that's not necessarily how you would define it in its narrow form. Um, and, you know, I, I share a perspective with you. I believe that is, you know, Fireblocks is much more core to market infrastructure than it is just a narrow cybersecurity firm. Um, do you mind giving your perspective on that and just helping, helping our listeners understand um, why that's a relevant difference? Well, I realized over the last three years that it's actually a huge difference, right? And I think that when we started, um, personally, we actually had this view of that we are a cybersecurity company for financial institutions, but very quickly we discovered that we are an infrastructure player uh, that just uses an underlying cybersecurity technology to basically provide a very secure infrastructure, but we are a much more of a fintech infrastructure or financial or market infrastructure than a cybersecurity company. And uh, as someone that actually spent a lot of uh, time and, you know, I was still very much involved in the cybersecurity space, there is a very distinct, uh, distinct uh, approach between the two, right? So most cybersecurity companies, it's sort of a wrapper technology on top of other IT or on top of other systems that designed, designed to take sort of unsecure systems. So, you know, maybe best example is if you have your Windows machine, it's like a very challenging, by the way, thing to do, but you know, the operating system was not as secure as we wished, you know, over the last 30 years. And then you have cybersecurity companies like that produce antivirus that, uh, antivirus that is designed to basically protect it. On the other hand, a, a great example is actually the iPhone, right? So for example, an iPhone, when people buy an iPhone, they sort of realize that it's actually a very secure device. So when people buy an iPhone, they don't care. They don't try to install an antivirus on an iPhone somehow an infrastructure, uh, an operating system was created that people, people perceive it as secure enough. They don't really bother with, uh, trying to dig if it's, uh, it, you know, it can be more secure, but basically it's secure enough. It basically gives you all the guardrails and all the things that protect you, but it's also very operational, right? You have the app store and you have 
all those things that you can install. And um, what I see, the way that I view Fireblocks is much more closer to iOS. Basically, the secure operating system or the secure, um, you know, secure, I guess, core uh, infrastructure for financial institutions that are basically establishing a digital asset. Uh, uh, digital asset programs or dig digital asset services, and we provide them the operating system that is secure, inherently secure by design, but what it actually does, it enables business applications. So is it fair to say, you know, it's really the, the kind of core foundation on pipes and plumbing for the market? Is that is that a fair representation or? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so essentially, an operating system for financial market. It's basically the pipes and the plumbing and the, you know, the account yeah. management. Um, and that's what we do. So maybe then it's a good segue into the custody side specifically. So, you know, if you think about traditional custody, it's very much safekeeping transactional, like moving assets and settlement of assets and then a, and a host of. You know, adjunct services that come with that in terms of reporting, et cetera. Um, when you think about custody for the digital asset class, um, how do you view custody in your words? And um, with with a particular focus on what are the nuanced risks that this asset class actually introduces um, for a traditional custody service? Yeah. So, I think the the one of the um, sort of obvious uh, or well known issues that uh, exist in digital assets is that as a custodian or someone that basically creates custody over digital assets, what you effectively maintain is the private key, right? So the private key, which is just a long random password, that is eventually what uh, governs the access and the ability to instruct a movement from you know account A to account B, right? So the custody is, is done on that, on that uh, key material. Um, the, that's very different, right? From traditional custody, maybe traditional custody where you have a, a safe and there is yeah. uh, like, you know, a few bars of gold in that safe. So that, that, that is traditional custody. Uh, and, uh, and the idea behind the fact that the ledger underneath that actually manage those accounts, the fact that it's immutable and the fact that. Um, the settlement times are uh, to an extent, uh, almost immediate introduces, of course, a lot of the benefits, right? That, uh, digital assets bring, uh, in terms of, uh, um, this sort of global ability to coordinate the account system and the ability to sell transactions instantaneously, but they also introduce a, a fair amount of risk and new risks, right? The first, the first and foremost is that if you made a mistake and you basically wired or transfer the assets to the wrong location, you have no recourse. And the second uh, issue is really the fact that it's real time, right? So as a comparison, we can take SWIFT and uh, international wire that might take somewhere between two to three days to settle. And within those two and three days, you have you can have a bunch of analysts that will look at those transactions. They will understand that there was something that is fraudulent and they will try to basically recourse or reverse it. In, in digital assets, you don't have that sort of time, right? So inherently the, the challenges of basically creating custody, they, I would say they basically boil down to two main issues. One is really how do you secure that private key 
at rest, right? Because that essentially what guarantees to you that, you know, you go to sleep with, you know, 100 Bitcoin in that wallet and you wake up the 100 Bitcoin is still there. And the second issue, which I think a lot of people don't really think about in this context is that eventually the most difficult part is really to make sure that you're transferring it to the right mm -hmm. location, right? And this is essentially where it's a very short period of time where there is a huge amount of risk, right? So if you're doing it once, you know, if you're doing one transaction per day, then you can have 10 people looking at that transaction and, you know, a very complicated process in, in which this is being done. But if you want to operate that at scale and doing hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of those transactions, clearly uh, those, you know, those protocols, those manual protocols cannot scale. And then you need a very different type of technology to make sure that that transaction is being issued in a correct way to the right party, to the authenticated party. And there is basically zero risk of that being diverted either to hackers or insiders or just like, you know, a human error that can in public blockchains burn the asset. Yeah. So how does Fireblock solve for that? Like what technologies are you leveraging? that um, starts or at least um, greatly enables the mitigation of that risk. Yeah. So in, in general, and that's sort of philosophically in, in cybersecurity, um, there is no sort of what, what you discover if you stay, if you spend a lot of time in cybersecurity is that there is no silver bullet, right? It's, yes. a, it's actually something that people are always surprised when I say it because it's, it's almost sounds like, you know, that I'm actually undermining the whole concept, but this is true. I mean, at the end of the day, it, in every defense philosophy, you need to think about layers. And, and what we've done from the very early days is really think about how many layers we can put here in order to basically mitigate those risks and also to make sure that those layers are sort of complementary, right? That they aren't sort of, you know, actually the same layer, you know, um, replicated multiple times. So the first layer, the first thing that we really need to protect is the private key, right? And in order to protect the private key, we've implemented multiple um, solutions or multiple defense controls that are uh, working in, in, in uh, conjunctions with, with one another. The first one is a technology called MPC that basically distributes the private key. Effectively, you don't have a private key in one single location. You have basically a distributed cluster of servers and, and, you know, individual devices that in order for a transaction to basically occur, they need to communicate with one another, but they never concentrate the private key on a single device, right? So that eventually what, what, what helps you to basically uh, reduce any single point of failure that first and foremost protects you from hackers that will try to basically compromise one device or maybe multiple devices from basically collecting the private key. And second of all, it really protects you from an insider threat because no single individual within the organization really has the ability to instruct uh, this without uh, the involvement of other machines or other individuals. So that's sort of like layer number one. Layer number two, we basically uh, using um, hardware isolation that is critical to sort of create another layer of security on the specific device itself. So even if the hackers, or even if, for example, uh, an administrator has a control of that machine, or maybe on all of the machines, there is still a very complicated barrier that they need to break through in order to really extract the individual key shares or the key materials. And then 
depending on our customers, um, we sort of work with them on a physical distribution of this uh, of this system um, to make sure that okay, it's not that we have like three different devices, but they're all being placed in the same room, but they're actually being distributed across uh, multiple environments where um, you know we, we put a lot of thought on on how to um, make sure that they don't sort of, if one of them falls, uh, there is sufficient amount of time to basically protect the others. So that's sort of how we protect the wallets. And this sort of uh, uh, isolation technology also help us to protect the network. So we basically created the Fireblocks network that uh, allows this B2B institutional system through which uh, you can really authenticate your counterparties and there is a guarantee of the transaction to go end to end without um, a susceptibility to being diverted to the wrong party. Yeah, so when I, when I think about, you know, casting our minds back to when, you know, this product offering, if I can phrase it that way, came to market first, there was a direct correlation of if the solution was cold wallet storage and like physical, like holding, you know, obviously an offline computer in a good old fashioned vault, often in a bunker in a desert somewhere. How have we evolved and, and maybe just help again, just demystify the wallet space a little bit, because I think there is um, definitely, at least my observation is there's definitely some confusion in the market. I would say in terms of what's the difference between hot, warm and cold storage. Um, and then obviously, you know, with MPC relative to that, um, I think it would be beneficial to kind of just, again, just level set on, um, you know, again, what wallet, um, storage is. Yeah, definitely. So, so definitely there is a lot of confusion because people sort of associate a lot of different terms into different buckets that like, for example, multi-sig MPC, cold storage, hot, hot storage, mm -hmm. sharding, all those terms are being, uh, mixed in, in a very different ways that uh, don't really eventually make do justice to any of those technologies. So um, the, the, the general idea is that there are basically two, two questions that are being asked. One is how the private key is being distributed, right? Which basically sort of dissolves this single point of failure that can exist, right? And the technology that the technologies that are designed to do that are what is called multi-sig or MPC, right? So multi-sig is sort of the older uh, technology that basically was invented back in 2012. It was invented specifically to deal with Bitcoin. And, you know, over time, um, there were sort of, it's not that it's insecure, but there are basically significant operational challenges in terms of porting it to uh, networks like Ethereum, uh, large scale, large scale, uh, um, organizations and so on. So basically MPC is sort of the next generation of multi-sig, which allows you to distribution in parallel. There is this very different concept, which is basically asking, is your system connected to the internet or disconnected to the internet? Right. And that's basically the difference between hot and warm storage and cold storage, right? So. In a cold storage, by definition, you have one of the key shares, and it can be multi-sig or MPC, or it can be even like one key that is never connected to the internet, or you know, usually is not connected to the internet, which generally speaking, first and foremost, um, sort of reduced potentially the online attack vector that people are very concerned of. 
but you know, on the other hand, it basically in introduces slowness, right? Because you actually need people, you know, physically running and scanning mm -hmm. QR codes. Um, and, and there is also basically some kind of, um, introduction of risks because you now have human that are involved in that process and you know, human make errors, you know, they have their own incentives and things like that. Right. So it does introduce uh, certain risks that exist in, in, in cold storage, but do not exist in hot storage. And then in hot storage, basically, um, the system is connected to the internet. Of course, it benefits from all the security aspects that we've discussed earlier, but that system actually is one, it's programmable. So we know how it's going to behave and two, it is actually capable of, uh, issuing, you know, hundreds, thousands of transactions per day, per minute, basically it's a high scale, uh, operation. And the point is that at the end of the day, when we think about how to really organize across those two different architectures, we really need to think about the use case, right? So, yeah. um, you know, if, if you're going to buy Bitcoin and you're going to store that Bitcoin for, you know, the next two years, then cold storage is, you know, a, a reasonable solution, right? If you're going to operate a, a payment solution or lending facility or retail focus facility, then cold storage is not a solution, right? You cannot basically scale it to the performance and scale it to the requirements. And therefore you basically need to use uh, hot and, and, and warm solutions that uh, basically managing that collateral in a secure way through that. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, I've, I've always find it, found it personally a little bit ironic that all of these sophisticated technologies walk us right back into a physical vault. Um, yeah, especially when you want access to the asset in, in, um, rapid speed, clearly for those use cases, uh, cold storage doesn't actually apply. Um, but it, thanks for the, the explanation. Cause I, I do think people, you know, do tend to throw terms out there. Um, how much are you spending your time educating people on the basics and just demystifying this space? Um, you know, if you could throw a percentage on it, because I would imagine that's a large portion of your time. Yeah, in the last uh, in the last couple of months, it's a lot. Of, it's probably I don't know thirty percent of my time, um, but it's great. I mean, it actually means that the space is expanding because uh, half a year ago, I wouldn't spend that much time on educating people because the only people that were involved were sort of the crypto enthusiasts, right? That already knew this space occasionally better than I do, uh, mm -hmm. and now we actually have. Uh, a lot of, I mean, I would say at, at the very least, the mainstream of the financial market basically coming in, you know, they want to, they understand that sort of the train is moving. They want to, and if they were not going to, you know, get on that train, <laughs> they, they will stay in the station. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, a lot of this time that I spend is, is just, uh, explaining people the, the, the basic concepts, uh, market structure, a lot of the things in this space are very different one than how they operate in the traditional space. Yeah. Actually, speaking of education, in terms of regulators, um, how much time do you actually spend with regulators? And what's your, what's your view on regulation in this space? Are you pro it or you think that it should be left as a free market untouched? No, I don't think it should be left as a free market. I think that free market, uh, you know, I, I'm actually not on the anarchist sort of side of, uh, 
of this market. Uh, I think that regulators are important, especially everything around the consumer protection. I think that what happened, you know, back in 2017, early 2018, with all the ICO was, you know, horrible thing, you know, both to the space and, you know, personally for, for, for the users, I think that, uh, um, yeah, regulators really need to think through of how they protect, you know, just customers from, you know, having reasonable access and protecting them from fraud and a lot of other issues here. That's sort of like, you know, one aspect. And the other aspect is really around the AML, anti-money laundering and, you know, terrorist financing and all the um, issues that, uh, by the way, they're not specific issues to, to cryptocurrencies. You know, most of the terrorist financing and anti-money laundering actually, you know, is, is conducted using uh, regular dollars. I do think that there is an opportunity here to really create a much more secure and robust system in which those, you know, it's much harder, by the way, to do those things. Um, but we do spend, you know, so to, to your specific question, we do spend a, a decent amount of time with regulators to basically help them to understand the space, the risk, the things that they need to, uh, to, to regulate and how they should be thinking about it. I think that some of the, um, you know, that, that, that some of the things that the, the regulators are currently doing are definitely very, very positive, you know, OCC, SEC, I think that all the recent movements that we've seen there are definitely encouraging and aligned with some of the, or, you know, with sort of gradual measures that allow people to really go in into the space. And I think that some of the, some of the reactions, uh, around mostly like, you know, around the uh, fat theft, I think that regulators need to be more thoughtful in terms of how they really, they, so they don't take the way that it worked in the old world and trying to basically apply it as is into new technology because it's just going to it's not going to be effective and it's going to just backfire and i'm not saying that because i'm sort of opposing that kind of regulation i mean i spent the first half of my life you know working for law enforcement and working for uh for uh, people that were basically fighting the bad guys right so i'm aligned with the mission over there but also um it's very clear to me that you know, what, what we've seen it with a lot of those things around privacy and encryption is that there is a point in time that technology changes, you know, privacy is sort of baked into those platform by design and the law enforcement just need to, law enforcement and regulators, they need to change their tactics. They cannot longer apply the old tactic. It happened in telecommunication, it happened with mobile phones. It's going to happen here as well. As it's faster, the, the, the regulators and the law enforcement will understand that they need a new toolbox and not the old tool toolbox, the better they're off. And I think the better the industry will be. Yeah. And that's why that's what prompted my question on the education, because for me, it's not as simple as taking traditional and applying a new asset class and then ticking a box and moving forward. We have to, we have to make sure that we're evolving for again, the nuances of the asset class um, and making sure that we're all appropriately protected along that chain. So if I think about, you know, why Bank of New York Mellon is taking a lead as a, a traditional custodian bank and the world's largest custody bank um, into this space, it is it is because of the fact that we, you know, first and foremost, we're there for our clients and they're moving in. Um, but secondly, it is, you know, it's that trust that we have in applying all of those institutional standards to make sure that things are done in a safe and secured way. Um, 
what's your, you know, just as a pure industry insider, how relevant do you think it is that Bank New York Mellon is taking a lead as a custody bank in this space and really applying, you know, an innovative mindset to the traditional custody world? Um, what do you think the implications of that will be on, you know, digital assets more broadly? So, in my view, when you guys did the announcement, somewhere in January or February? Uh, two months ago, yeah. Time is yeah. <laughs> time is skewed, but yes. Yeah. So whatever that date is, let's say like you know, 15th of February. Uh, I think that date will actually be written as a chapter in one of the uh, you know financial history books because uh, I think that the fact that uh, Bank of New York Mellon is moving into this space and you know the the strategy that you guys are taking, which is a very I think broad and uh, innovative strategy is going to propel and transform the the space uh, i mean you guys sit at the top the top of the pyramid right in terms of trust and uh, and trust is an of, a, of an essence here right so it's it's true that uh, over the last uh, two or three years we had a lot of small fintech companies that were coming here and sort of hedge funds and innovators but at the end of the day to move really big players and make them comfortable in playing in this space and uh, we we need someone that is in the top of the pyramid i think you guys are just moving the market uh with you know leaning into into this and i also what what i think excite, excites me the most is that um you know you guys have great people that are working on this project and sure. and i think that it's not going to be um this kind of sort of just okay we are here just to basically check the box. You guys are actually going to lead this space and and to really show people how innovative and aggressive this technology can be used for. Um, and, and I, you know, we're just seeing that like everybody are following the path that you guys are sort of opening up. Yeah, I mean, look, on a personal note, it's it's a super exciting time. You know, we talk a lot about the transformation of custody. And for me, you know, this really is the kickstart of that. You know, there's a lot of things that we can leverage and take advantage of digital assets and new asset class to really just transform even the traditional. I mean, you talked before about digitally representing uh, traditional assets on chain. Um, and for me, you know, again, we're really starting to to see what, you know, I would say an area that was more than ripe for transformation and the custody side start to move into the modern era and, and again start to to chart a path forward which is fantastic so given you missed your um thousand you know thousand dollar bitcoin price if you were to now look into a crystal ball what would you forecast as the next big hot trend in this area i mean obviously you know, DeFi is all around the place as a you know, a lot of industry chatter there, but, you know, again, if you had to try and project what's the next big hot thing in this space, what would you call it? I think it's still DeFi. I mean, it's sort of the intersection between, for me, it's the intersection between stable coins and, and, and DeFi, uh, you know, to a certain extent, maybe some of the NFT stuff, mm -hmm. but, but predominantly, I think that it's the intersection around and uh, DeFi and, and stable coins where I think that this is actually going to really revolutionize how uh, payment and how collateral and treasury management is going to be done. And yeah, and, yeah, and that's 
probably you know the next 12 18 24 months where we will see a lot of innovation and push yeah yeah no makes a lot of sense um, so just one quick shift to ESG. So when we talk about trends in the industry, obviously ESG is another big one. Um, you know, clearly Bitcoin has been, um, you know, I'd say there's been a, a large amount of chatter about how um, environmentally unfriendly Bitcoin is, just given the mining protocols that they leverage. Um, so again, I think in terms of, you know, Mis misinformation in the industry, there is sometimes a natural walk between it's ESG unfriendly and digital assets, which I, I think is, is quite a leap. But what's your perspective on um, dovetailing digital assets with ESG and how can digital assets actually help with ESG um, in, you know, with various different, um, you know, again, industry things that are going on at the moment? Yeah, so, so I think that there are basically, I think, uh, three aspects there. The first one is really the proof of work mining that uh, there is a, there is just like a, a question over there that is still very unclear in terms of how much of that is renewable energy and how much is not, you know, you see stats between 40% to 75%. Um, I, I mean, there are probably two aspects there. One, this has to go into full renewable energy. Um, Speaking about regulation, I think this is where really the regulators has the opportunity. And I think the Chinese just made some crackdown over there in terms of banning, uh, uh, you know, mining in specific territories. Um, the second thing that, uh, you know, we've seen over the, the, the last year is that there are a lot of startups that are basically going with uh, sort of energy optimization uh, solutions that they're basically only using sort of waste wasted energy to be, to do mining. I've seen you know, a few of those uh, uh, going into the space. And that's basically Bitcoin, I guess. I think for all the other protocols, we see it for ETH2, Cardano, and uh, it has to go into proof of stake, right? This is, there is no reason for that to be on the proof of work. I don't know if Bitcoin will ever be a proof of stake. I don't think it will, may, will make a lot of sense, but I think for all the other protocols, there is no excuse and I think the one that will not go into the proof of stake will likely die, right? Because people will not accept the non-environmental nature over there. Um, now, on the flip side, I think that basically, of course, there are there unrelated to, to to the cryptocurrency themselves. There is essentially the just the the market of uh, how do you create traceability, how do you create transparency around just general energy consumption and I think over there digital assets in terms of carbon credits and basically the markets that are evolving over there there is a, a really huge opportunity to create um, transparency and markets that regulate and off and help to offset that so hopefully the technology itself like the blockchain te technology itself will help us to move uh, the, the broader energy market into um, uh, you know, a much more environmental friendly and hopefully like, you know, zero emission sort of future in the next uh, decade or so. Yeah, I think that's a great example of um, what we spoke about earlier in terms of where markets exist, but they don't exist in a very efficient form. And therefore, um, you know, there there isn't as much potential trading on on those assets. So being able to actually create a, um, a market around whether it's carbon credits or an extension of that would be a fantastic use of digital assets. 
So I know you and I could talk for hours on all things digital assets, but we have to probably draw to a close at some stage. Um, just one last question for you, because just as you were talking through your journey um, at the top of our chat, one of the things that just sprung to mind for me was the fact that, you know, it's been, as you said, a long journey, um, but it's been quite a transformational journey, I would imagine, on a personal front. Um, so you've had to sort of mold yourself into many different forms, um, obviously from a, you know, working in the defense force through to, um, you know, technology, cybersecurity. I personally know that you could stand toe to toe with an insurance lawyer, which is no easy feat. What are the, the core, you know, just leadership traits that you have just, you know, inherent in yourself that have carried you to this um, place and that, you know, are your strongest traits to carry you into, you know, a continued successful future? Yeah, so I, I think that there are probably two, two aspects that um, sort of, I think, were, were really transformational for me personally along the years. Um, the first one, uh, which I think sort of where I um, transformed from actually being, a, I would say, like, you know, a technologist to an executive or basically technologist uh -huh. to, to a manager, uh, which happened probably about a decade ago. And that really is sort of the understanding that you need to focus on the customer, right? That the customer and the market, uh, sort of this product market fit, essentially understanding is the most critical thing to not only, you know, personally for me and personally for the company as really the, the, the leader of, of, uh, my, my group is to make sure that all the, my, all the employees, all the people that are part of our journey, they understand the customer. We, they understand the mission that they, they understand what we are trying to do and why they, why they wake up in the morning, right? That's, uh. A critical thing for me to really address in every point and communicate to them. The second aspect is really just continuously learning, right? When we started with, uh, with fireblocks, the amount of books that I had to read about market infrastructure and finance was, you know, I had to read a lot, right? I, 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 I didn't, you know, I didn't know what like, you know, central clearing is, what is, you know, depository, what is an option. Uh, there was a very steep learning curve, but I think that if people are really able to focus on reading and educating themselves on things that matter and specifically matter to their customers, to, to my previous point, uh, you can really go into different industries and eventually, you know, sort of become, I think, the leader there. Yeah, no, it makes sense. We've got um, Todd Gibbons, our CEO, has a very strong philosophy of adopting the learn-it-all culture, not the know-it-all culture. and the you know, for me, it's actually core to being a resilient leader as well, because if you're constantly learning, you're motivated, you're protecting a little bit more against burnout because, um, you know, obviously there's a tremendous amount of work um, to keep innovating and disrupting. Um, I thank you for your collaboration with us because it's been a very exciting journey to date and I look forward to continuing that journey with you. And I feel like we have potentially a couple of spin-off podcasts, your leadership podcast, we can announce. <laughs> um, we can, you know, I'm sure as we continue to think through those use cases that make sense to our clients, um, there will be, you know, a further journey that we will be going on. So thank you very much, Michael. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Caroline. I appreciate you guys uh, yeah, bringing me here. Thanks. Hey everyone, Tom here again. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We hope you'll keep listening on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you consume your podcasts. And we'd be grateful if you'd share your feedback. Leave a review or a rating or tell us what you'd like to hear more about on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course on bnymelon.com. We appreciate you joining. We're grateful to you as listeners, and we'll see you at the next episode. Thank you.